0: God's mercy is always there for those who are willing to repent. When you see God utilize his judgment, it's because of an unwillingness to repent. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's Word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of Scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's Word in a world has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion, does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So, last week was focused on chapters 18 and 19 of 2 Kings, uh, which really focuses on Hezekiah and his life and reign in the southern kingdom of Judea. But in chapter 20, we actually go back in time a little bit, because in chapters 18 and 19, the overarching story is this incursion by the Assyrians and their desire to take over Judea, and particularly Jerusalem. Um, And God prevents that from happening, and he saves the kingdom, and he saves Hezekiah. So that's the story, and now we get some background into Hezekiah's life um, prior to that. So we actually go back in time a little bit uh, and learn a little bit more about Hezekiah's life. In the next chapter, we'll see Hezekiah's son. Uh, which is a stark contrast to how Hezekiah lived. So that's what we're digging into tonight. And so if you think about last week or that incursion and the deal with the Assyrians, um, now we're going back into Hezekiah's life and seeing how he interacted with God a little bit, uh, understanding why and how God protected Hezekiah um, and Hezekiah's faithfulness. So it says, In those days... Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. So, cheerful message. And uh, Hezekiah then, he turned his, his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah whipped bitterly. Uh, So he gets this news. He's sick. He hears from Isaiah that he's not going to make it. And he just prays to God and asks God to remember how faithful Hezekiah has been. And so verse 4, It happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return, And tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord God of David your father I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So, you get a glimpse into Hezekiah's life. And as he is really wrestling with his mortality, he hears from Isaiah that he's not going to make it, and he just prays to God to remember that he's been faithful. Now, he doesn't really ask for anything else. He just says, God, remember that I've been faithful. And before Isaiah even leaves the building, he hears from God and tells him to turn around and go talk to Hezekiah and say, I'm going to extend your life 15 years and I'm going to protect you from the Assyrians, the big bad army that is taking over everybody else. But Judea is going to be protected because of Hezekiah. So then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs so that they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. So he must have had some sort of open sore or boil um, in relation to the sickness, and Isaiah tells him to boil figs or to to take a cake of figs and lay it on the boil. This wasn't actually outside of normal practice for medicinal purposes at the time. And so this is interesting because I think a lot of times we look for the big supernatural move of God and something that's extraordinary. And in this case, they're just doing something that they would have normally practiced medicinally anyway. And that's how Hezekiah gets healed. Sometimes God just works provisionally through normal matters. He's just with you. Um, And that's why I think it's wise often to pray for the wisdom of the doctors and nurses that are helping you. um, Because God can just use his providence to work naturally through the order of things. Uh, to heal you. And that's what he does with Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? And then Isaiah said this, this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go backward 10 degrees? Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go back 10 degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. So apparently, there's this way to measure time out on the steps of the palace that was left there from Ahaz. And Isaiah basically says to Hezekiah, You have a choice for how you're going to be aware of when it's time to go to the temple. And here's your choice. The, the shadows will move naturally or in reverse. And Hezekiah says, well, it's easy for the shadows to move the normal direction. Um, how would I know that this is a supernatural sign from God, that it's time for me to go back to the temple? And so he says, do the crazy thing. <laughs> do the th- do, make a sign that I can't miss actually make the shadows move in the opposite direction from the way that it should move naturally on the sundial. And so that's what God does. The shadows actually move in the opposite direction, 10 degrees. And that's how Hezekiah knows. Now, interestingly, we'll find out that this didn't just happen on the sundial. This seemed to happen in the region like the Middle East in general. And so verse 12, we pick up, it says, At that time, Baradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory. All that was found among his treasures, there was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. So the king of Babylon... Now, here's the backdrop of what's happening. Assyria is the kingdom that has grown to an enormous size, and they're just swallowing all of the countries and growing, and they're just capturing land and people. On the other side of Israel is Babylon, and they're kind of up and coming. They're not the big kahuna yet, but they're on their way, and Israel's in between, and they're stuck in, the well, Judea is in the middle. And the king of Babylon hears that something strange is going on, and he hears that Hezekiah is sick, and so he goes and visits Hezekiah and brings him gifts, and we'll find out more in a little bit. Um, about why. But at that time, Hezekiah, while a good and faithful king, also is a little bit naive. And he decides to show the king of Babylon all of the treasures that are held within the kingdom of Judea. All of the silver and gold in the temple and in the palace, and all of the goods, basically saying to a neighboring future enemy here's what you get to plunder if you take us over. Uh, So this ends up not being a very wise move. But then Isaiah the prophet went to the king Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say and where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, they came from a far country from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I haven't shown them. So Isaiah is trying to get to the bottom of it. And he says, what did you show the king of Babylon? And Hezekiah says, everything. I showed him all the stuff. All the goods. It's like a kid showing off his new toy. Like, look at this. And uh, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the place, in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he said, Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Now that sounds odd, that that's something he would be thanking God for. So let's take a moment and look deeper into the story. So we're going to go to 2 Chronicles 32 because this is the parallel passage in Chronicles that deals with these events. And so we're going to pick up in verse 24. It says, In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. So that's the the shadows moving. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was looming looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart in the heart of his inhabitants of of Jerusalem. So the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So what that is saying is Hezekiah was expecting God's wrath and God's judgment from the kingdom of Assyria. And after Hezekiah was humbled and prayed to God and recommitted his life to him, he is seeing God's mercy in that God will not bring judgment upon the kingdom of Judah during Hezekiah's reign. And that's why he says those things are good. But just a little bit more background, if you jump down to verse 31, it says, Regarding the ambassadors and the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. So now you get a glimpse of why they were there. The Babylonians didn't just come because they heard Hezekiah was sick, but because they were aware of that supernatural event. And what we know about Babylonians and their history is they tracked the stars and the movements. Um, And they were significantly interested in astronomy and astrology. And so they must have noticed what was going on and then caught wind that it was something that took place because of the God of Israel, and they went to go test it out. And so this puts kind of a target on the kingdom of Judah, because now Babylon's interested. And... Hezekiah was foolish enough to show them all the gold and silver that they have. Now, he might have been trying to show off a little bit or show strength in that way, but it also gave your enemy a chance to see what there is to plunder. Now, the last uh, little passage in, in chapter 20, dealing with Hezekiah, it says, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah In all his might, how he made a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city. Are they not written into the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now that's a big deal. Hezekiah had a construction project that brought water into the city walls so that you could have. That makes it a lot easier to deal with a siege because you have access to water inside of your defense system. Um, So that's a big deal. And then Hezekiah rested with his fathers. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. So Hezekiah, a good king, and you see his commitment to God and how that extended not only his life, but extended the grace of God on the people of Judah because of the goodness of Hezekiah. But then Hezekiah has a son. His name was Manasseh. Now, chapter 21 opens up with this, and this is really the focus of tonight, Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, which, by the way, is the longest-lasting king in Judah. Um, I don't know why. I can't explain it, but it's true. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, this is interesting, because every time we've read this phrase, it's always been connected to a previous king. Whether it was most often Jeroboam in the northern kingdom, but what you're going to read here is something unique. It says he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Meaning, all of the people that Joshua kicked out of the land of Israel during their uh, all the battles in the book of Joshua when they took down Jericho and everyone else in the city of Ai and all of that. And the work that Joshua did, getting rid of their pagan influences, all goes away at the hand of Manasseh. He brings in all of the pagan rituals from the original Canaanites and the people that originally had settled the land. And God is not pleased with that. And then it says, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and he worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. So this is the glimpse you get into what God thinks of Manasseh. Manasseh brings back all of the pagan influences from before Israel settled the land. He brings back in the pagan influences from what King Ahab did in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he rebuilds all of the altars that Hezekiah, his father, had torn down. All of the things that made Hezekiah a great king are completely reversed at the hands of Manasseh. So, not great. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He also made his son pass through fire Practiced Susang, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So he sacrificed his son in fire. Um, He built altars and put them on the temple grounds and in the temple. He also consulted um, mediums and and consulted in witchcraft. This is a whole unique set of evil. That we're looking at. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. So in the place where David and Solomon were told by God that if you follow my commands, the people of Israel, my chosen people, will always be here. And in that place, he absolutely defies God with the idol of Asherah, which is a sister god of Baal. So, but they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And so that's the final summation of how bad Manasseh was. God says that he seduced the people to do more evil than the nations that God kicked out of the land to settle Israel in the land. That's how much influence in pagan worship and witchcraft and false worship happened under Manasseh. Now, here's the interesting thing. Manasseh was a spiritual guy. He worshiped a whole lot, just not God. And so, you know, you might have heard this phrase in culture. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. So was Manasseh. And this is what God said about him. So not a good place to be. Uh, true worship matters. False worship is an offense to God. It's literally the first two commandments. (laughs) Don't put any other God before the Lord your God and don't create any false idols to worship. And Manasseh has done an incredible amount of both. And so the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets saying, because Manasseh, king of Judah, had done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly Than all the Amorites who were before him, and also has made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel: Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears it, both his ears, whoever hears it, both his ears will tingle. So God is bringing such a judgment because of how evil Manasseh allows Israel to go that people. People's ears are going to tingle when they hear the words of God. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. That is some powerful imagery. So first of all, Ahab's line was completely wiped out and destroyed. That is something that is said here. It will resemble getting rid of Ahab, and he will remove the people of Jerusalem like one wipes a dish clean and then flips it upside down. That's powerful. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. God is saying, quit doing evil things. I made a promise to you, and under David, I made a promise that if you would just follow me and listen to my commands, I wouldn't kick you out. Now, there's also a promise that God made long before David, and that promise was to Abraham. That his people would always settle the land. They would always have a place in the land of Israel, and that all of the nations would be blessed through Abraham's seed that covenant that God made with Abraham is unconditional. Which is why Israel still exists. It's the only nation on earth where that group has been kicked out of their homeland and brought back, not once, but twice. The Babylonians kicked them out starting in 605 B.C. all the way to 586 B.C kicked them out of their land, and then they went back 70 years later. And then the Romans kicked them out in 70 AD, and then nearly 2,000 years later, little over 1,900 years later, they came back to the land in 1948. In one day, they were re- put back into existence, just as promised by God, because the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. But the covenant with David was conditional, and so they were going to be punished for their behavior because they did not follow God's commands. God is saying, even since Egypt, they haven't listened to me. And under Manasseh, it's been the worst, and God's had it. It says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Yikes. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Amon reigned in his place. Now I'm going to quickly read through Amon's reign because it's very short, and then we're going to go back to talking about Manasseh real quick. So um, verse 19, Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz of Joppa. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked in all the ways that his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father served and worshiped them. He forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Then the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon, uh, which he did, are, not, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the Garden of Uzzah. Then his son Josiah took place. So we learn about Ammon is his reign is very short. The people rebelled against him uh, and made Josiah king. And... His son, uh, but he was just as evil as Manasseh. And if you just read that from Kings, you miss some important context, because the next king is amazing. He might be my favorite in the all of the books of starting with Second, our First and Second Samuel, all the way to through First and Second Chronicles. Um, Josiah might be my favorite, and so you miss. Some context that's really important. And so we're going to look at 2 Chronicles 33 really quick to get some understanding about what happened to Manasseh. And so if you start in in verse 11, it says, therefore, the Lord brought upon the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. So at some point, the king of Assyria kidnaps Manasseh and brings him to Babylon. Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Uh, Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So Manasseh, when he was put into intense pressure, he actually repented and restored a relationship with God. And see what he does next. It says, After this, he built a wall outside the city of David, west of uh, the side of Gihon, in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in the fortified cities of Judah. And this is where it gets really important. Verse 15, he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and the altars he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So, Manasseh, towards the end, as evil as he was, when he gets pressure put on him, he actually repents and he turns back to God and he tears down some of the altars. He gets rid of the altars that he put in the temple and, re- and fixes up the altar that's supposed to be in the temple and offers sacrifices to God. And God has mercy on him. And God grants him his repentance. And he gets... Manasseh out of, that, out of that trouble and brings him back into Jerusalem. And when he comes back, he does these things. He fixes up the temple. He gets rid of the idols that he put. And he stops worshiping foreign gods. Now, that's wonderful. But it, it almost seems like what you wouldn't expect. Because this is almost the narrative people put with the Old Testament. How mean God was in the Old Testament seems like he's always pouring out judgment. God is always willing to listen to repentance. And this is the most evil guy in the Old Testament. This is the worst of the worst, and God listens to his repentance and brings him back into Jerusalem. And it was true repentance because as soon as he was safe, he didn't go back to his old ways. He actually started getting rid of the false idols and the false worship. But unfortunately, he dies, and his son, he didn't have enough time with his son for his son to get the message. And so Ammon kept Israel, kept the, the kingdom of Judah on the same path that they were that they started on under Manasseh until Josiah comes. And we're gonna see something interesting when we get there. But the point is. God's mercy is always there for those who are willing to repent. When you see God utilize his judgment, it's because of an unwillingness to repent. God chose not to destroy Nineveh when he sent Jonah and the people repented. The most evil person in all of Israeli history who offended God the most was saved from his capture And his repentance was accepted. And so it doesn't matter who you are or how far you've gone. God is willing to accept your repentance and grant you mercy. Because God is a merciful God, full of grace. It's when you refuse to do so that you receive judgment. You refuse to accept his mercy you receive judgment. And that is the point. Now, uh, I'm excited about next week. We'll be talking all about Josiah's reign. Um, So with that, let's pray. Father God, thank you. Uh, Thank you for this story. God, what a contrast between a king who loved you and wanted the rest of, of the kingdom of Judah to love you and was always willing to seek you out and to just ask that you remember that he was faithful compared to the worst, the absolute worst in Manasseh. But God, thank you that you are a God of grace because even Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Maybe the greatest evangelist who's ever lived, who did more for getting the church off the ground than anyone, called himself the chief of sinners. And I think All of us can relate to that sentiment. For we know that we have not lived up to your standard, but because you are a God of mercy and grace, we have the opportunity to have a relationship with you, to be redeemed and reconciled and granted the gift of eternal life. Thank you for your grace and mercy that we don't deserve. But thank you for being good enough to grant it. In Jesus' name, amen.